in my eyes, where we're at today with threat intelligence is it's a luxury. Until we can do this concept of shifting left and really getting closer to finding the root cause. Overwhelming majority said it's really where we get our information. It drives operations. One person that did say it was snake oil, though, was Gary V. Gary V has never interacted with any of my content. We're, we're connected <laughs> on LinkedIn, but he was like, snake oil. I honestly feel like I hit the occupational lottery, kind of fell into intelligence. I started in the Marine Corps, went to the National Security Agency doing technical intelligence, and then when I got out, I went to Cyber Command, what would eventually become threat intelligence. I was like, oh, I need to get some skills because if I ever had to leave the government, <laughs> I would have nothing to do. But then lo and behold, it became one of the biggest things ever. A lot of buzzwords using threat intelligence. I feel like it sets the context for so many things, but I'd love to hear from your perspective, like how, how did you get into threat intelligence and, and how has it been for you since? I think I'd say I have a similar story, right? Because I, I went out of high school and went into army intelligence. So I was 18 years old, looking at Iraq and doing stuff there. And from that, I got out of the military and then I started doing IT work. And I you know, kind of transferred the skills there. And then Threat Intel just kind of fell into my lap as, a, as the field of cybersecurity grew. And I was like, man, this is great. It's like I'm in the military again. I'm looking at threat actors, seeing what the problems are, seeing what the opportunities are. So yeah, the military was my way in. Same for me, uh, <laughs> Army Intelligence. But you know what? It was it was unique in that I had no idea really what I was signing up for. Right. Like I joined to be a linguist, not knowing what language I'd be assigned to. And at that point, the Army would you know assign you based on a, a test score. I thought for sure I'm going to go to Iraq and be walking village to village and translating people to people. But what really happened was I graduated from boot camp. And I was the only one that was assigned to learn Chinese. And I'm like, this must be a mistake, you guys. <laughs> like, I could barely learn Spanish. How am I going to learn Mandarin? Right. And then after I graduated language school, which I still consider a miracle, I was assigned to work at the NSA. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what a wait, what am I doing with Chinese at NSA? <laughs> and I really had no idea about espionage and counterintelligence and threat intel at all. But I consider it a blessing. Because through those few years I spent at NSA and learning the foundation of intelligence, it led me to cyber threat intelligence. Yeah. For me, I feel like I'm still getting started. <laughs> but I didn't have like the same military upbringing. I actually got through, started intelligence when we started working together mm -hmm. and really focusing on automation. Like how can I take the information from an intelligence analyst and actually use it for something. Yep. I, I feel like we are still trying to get to that as a community in cybersecurity. Like, how do we use threat intelligence? Some people really lean in it. I, I've heard people say, I'm all in. I want all the threat intelligence. But then some are like, no, like it's snake oil. I don't want to touch it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny. So we did a poll on LinkedIn, you know, measuring how people felt about threat intelligence. I honestly thought it was going to be a little bit split, but mm -hmm. overwhelming majority said it's really where we get our information. It drives operations. One person that did say it was snake oil, though, was Gary V. I, I, Gary V has never interacted with any of my content. We're, we're connected <laughs> on LinkedIn, but he was like, snake oil. And like, I was like, that's interesting. But when you think about where this concept of snake oil came from, I remember going into organizations and being like, Hey, I'm here to build threat intelligence. And they were like, oh, okay, build threat intelligence. Huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Almost like I was, you know, panhandling, trying to like make some money. But I, 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 my entire career, I've seen the value of threat intelligence because like we were saying earlier, it provides the context. Where do you think the, the snake oil sort of concept comes from? Well, I think if you, if you don't know about threat intelligence and then you look at some of the intelligence failures, Right. If you look at the Iraq war, whatever the case, even Afghanistan, perhaps you could say the layman might see these failures and think that intelligence doesn't work or it's snake oil. I mean, the truth is intelligence is is a well-reasoned guess. 
You know, it, I think there's people have this uh, assumption that because it's an Intel assessment, then it's going to happen. That's why I actually use confidence levels and likelihood and things like that. So I, I think you see what's happening in the, the big world and then you pull that into your organization. I mean, companies are, are, are trying to do multi-factor authentication. They're trying to keep up on the hamster wheel of patching. Like threat intel may not be that big of a priority for them. And like, I am a little skeptical of this and I have all these other operational things I need to do. So we're just going to kind of table this on the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, you have to dig in a little bit. I'm an analyst. So <laughs> let's talk about where the expectation comes from. It's not an all-in-one solution. Mm-hmm. There's no magic potion. Like threat intel is not going to solve all your security problems, right? But sometimes the sales and marketing people make it sound like that. <laughs> yeah. And I love yeah. them so much. Right. But uh, oftentimes they're out front presenting something that cannot be provided in the back. And so you're like, okay, let's let's make sense of the expectations that we're putting out there. And the expectation is that it adds context. It adds relevant, timely information to how can I assess this risk and whatever that risk looks like for that organization. So I think it's a lot about managing expectations too. What is threat intelligence? I feel like depending on who you ask, you might get different answers. And I guess like to even go back to intelligence, we have to say what that is. And from my experience, it's the acquisition and the application of knowledge. But cyber threat intelligence is a little different because there's computers involved. <laughs> so how would you all describe like exactly what CTI is and maybe even what it's not? I mean, if you think about intelligence, we know the intelligence cycle. There's a planning and direction phase and you're identifying the questions that you have for your organization. But ultimately there are questions that your business has, I think about the threat model. Um, you could be talk about Russia, Ukraine. There may be questions like how will this impact? And you start with this high level question and then you start breaking it down. What are the assets and resources that could be impacted by it? How would we know that they're being impacted by it? And you start you know, building out this kind of taxonomy of questions and how you get answers and then you produce an answer. And it could be strategic, it could be tactical, it could be operational and it's different. So it's, it's gonna be different to each organization, but ultimately you're trying to get some information, knowledge, intelligence about a threat so that you can do something about it. Um, that's the way I would think about it, but it's different for each organization. Yeah, it could, it, it could be information, facts, truth about an adversary or a competitor. You know, not everything, I, we yeah. come from government side and I'm like, no, it's an adversary. And they're like, oh, well, we're talking about competitors too. Mm-hmm. Like what kind of competitive intelligence can we get? Right. I think at the beginning it started out as like secrets, like government secrets and everything was classified, but now so much is open source. And I was really blown away when I came from the government side to the private sector at just how much can be obtained through open sources. Like if you know where to look, then you can find you know a wealth of information. And especially now in my current role, really analyzing disinformation and you know coordinated influence operations, to me, intelligence also means finding the truth, finding the facts and revealing that to the people that need that truth the most. We were talking to Maurice Ashley, uh, first black chess grandmaster of, of all time. And uh, we talked to him about the OODA loop. Yep. We were like, you know, observe, orient, decide, act. And he was like, oh, that's so brilliant. Like, I mean, we can't take credit for it, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty cool. That was my idea. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I invented it, you know, feel free to use it. But no, I, I really feel like intelligence resides in that orient aspect because you take that information, knowledge, intelligence, and you figure out where is your company, your individual, your devices in play in that threat environment. But I I do feel like sometimes we try to fit a square peg into a round hole when Mm -hmm. it comes to intelligence. Also, sometimes when we come in, we're like, I'm going to bring the most intelligence. But you have to be really surgical when it comes to bringing intelligence into an organization. From your perspective, like where do sometimes we go wrong with adopting intelligence for an organization? Um, you know, I think a lot of organizations don't start with intelligence requirements. Mm-hmm. I think that's the basics that we start with is what are your priorities? Do you know, like we were talking about earlier, where are your assets? Like, what are you protecting? Yep. You know, just, just like a FOB in Iraq, you have to know where your boundaries and borders are and what your responsibility is particular to this organization that you need to know and then reassess because those will change. I think one of the ways you go wrong is you produce 
a, a product, you, know, you get super excited, you're in a new org, you produce this huge report and nobody reads it because right. it's not it's not tailored to the organization because you weren't asking, you weren't answering questions that they even had, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So I think if you look at broader cybersecurity, I think we have failed to communicate effectively with the business and even sometimes up the chain of command. I think we, we've struggled in cybersecurity for decades to frame things in the way that business leaders care. And then they just put us in a little corner in the basement, like, oh, you're a little, you're a little CTI <laughs> person. I don't, want, I don't want to see you. And we're not aligned to the business. Mm-hmm. Literally basements. What's funny about all of this is I'm the guy that was using IOCs, indicators of compromise. I would subscribe to feeds, you know, look at these feeds, and then try to apply them to my security solutions. And through an automated means, because I don't have, like you said, I don't have time for that, to go through each of these pieces of information and try to really understand it, especially if I'm the only security engineer on my team. Then I'm just really relying on my source to make decisions on my behalf. And right. that I feel like that is what gets organizations burnt when someone just relies on a piece of intelligence and they look at it as the truth. But it's really just knowledge. It's just information that you can use, but it's not necessarily the truth for your organization. Right. You know, banking is different than retail. Yeah, it could be, yeah, it could yeah. be the financial yeah. services truth or, you know, a different a vendor's truth, but it's not what's true in your organization. And right. that's especially applicable with vulnerability intelligence. Mm-hmm. Just because it's a 10.0 on that CVSS score doesn't mean it necessarily needs to take priority in your organization. Right. Mm-hmm. If you don't use that application, then it needs to drop down. One of the things you talk about all the time is using your own information for your intelligence, right? That's the primary place you should go. A lot of folks look at it from the other way. They, they go, I want all the intelligence that's out there. But really, it's almost like one of those targets. Like the outside is all the intelligence, everything that's going on out there. Then you get closer, look at industry-specific threats, like the ISACs, like knowledge sharing in that way. But the best information that you can get is right there in your own environment. Yeah, before you go out and spend money on anything uh, external or even internal capabilities, like you're standing up a function or your new security leader going to organization, you need to do an audit of like, what are my collection capabilities? That could be your EDR tool, that could be your SIM tool, that could be your Okta logs. You know, what, um, what am I collecting on? And then you start having the conversation, here's my collection capability and here's the questions I need to answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, am I going to be targeted by ransomware? probably pretty likely. And then how can my tools detect and maybe mitigate ransomware things that are there? So yeah, I think I wouldn't spend any money on an external service until I did a good assessment internally and then understand my gaps and then make, because we all have limited budget. You know, there are certainly companies that want to buy all the things and they'll have five different commercial CTI providers and things along those lines. But most people aren't like that, right? Mm -hmm. So sure, you can complement capabilities because there's stuff external providers do that maybe you don't ever want to do, or you just don't want to spend the money on, but make sure you're spending your limited resources like in the right spot. Otherwise, you're not maximizing your budget. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you can't protect what you can't see. If you don't know that something exists, then how are you going to use threat intelligence to you know, stop that attack? And what I've seen organizations really flop on is you know, exactly that, looking within and then doing something with that information. And one of the terms that me and Chris talk about on a lot of conferences and webinars now is asset intelligence, mm-hmm. using the context from your computers, laptops, servers, and applying that towards you know, your, your protection. And I think with CTIs, uh, cyber threat intelligence, there's a lot of things that you can do with your internal intelligence, and then you can apply that to your external intelligence. But it seems like with security, we don't know where to start. I think, like you were saying, it's best to start within and then branch out. But at what point do you know that you've kind of surveyed your internal environment and now you're ready Just for Just check the CMDB. <laughs> all right, that's Just it. That's all you got to do. <laughs> like, there's, a thousand, there's a thousand assets there. I'm now ready for CTI. I'm ready. <laughs> I will say one thing that I've always talked about in this, because... You know, you have the operational kind of CTI. I usually just bucket into like strategic and operational. You could mm-hmm. say strategic, tactical, operational, but right. that maybe is a little bit too much for most orgs. Mm-hmm. On the strategic side, one thing that I always like, and I would talk to customers about it, is if you're a public company, is looking at your SEC Form 10K. Yep. That Form 10K, you've probably heard me say this I in have, conferences yeah. in, in the past. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's right. We have talked about this before, yeah. but there's a top risks in there. There's probably like 15 risks for your organization. Um, and if you're struggling to 
be relevant and have conversations with business leaders, you know, the 10K could be like, okay, it's our retail payment system, it's our customer reward system. And then you could be like, here's what my company cares about. They're calling it out. Now, what are the assets in my environment, to your point, Ron, right, that line up to that? Then you can start having a more tactical conversation there. But I think those form 10Ks or just the risk, even if you're, even if you're a private company, right, you have a risk management function, find out what the top 10 risks are yeah. and then see how the assets that line up there and those assets could be people. There's yes. certainly, you know, the tech stack as well, but people yeah. are a key component. And then you can start to see how are they protected? How do we have blind spots? You know, like you said, if you don't have the, the visibility, you're never going to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned people because I was just thinking that how do people interact with those applications and make it even more, make your organization more vulnerable, uh, human behavior. Yeah. What I think people hear is threat intelligence and breaches like, okay, I'm going to use this information and now I'm not going to suffer from a breach anymore. I think that's where our addiction to threat intelligence has come from is to stop this bleeding that is somewhat inevitable, but you know, threat intelligence can help us in many ways, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle. What do you what do you say for both of you when people come to your organizations and say, I just want the threat intelligence and I'm looking for it to stop all of the badness? I know it happens. I know it happens. (laughs) Um, Well, a lot of people just say, I need threat intel, but they don't really know what specifically they need. Mm -hmm. So I think it helps to break it out into different types of intelligence. If you have a global organization, do you need to know about sanctions against the country where you have an office? Or do you need to know any type of new diplomacy that's happening in the world that's going to affect your your organization, you know, there's such a variety of, of threat intel. So it's really about honing down, like, what exactly do you need? Right. Um, because most people are not familiar with all the types. And and their stakeholders aren't. I'll go back to the Form 10K kind of thing. Like, the the teams typically don't even know what the business is trying to protect. Yep. Depending on what level of the organization you are. So if you're disconnected from your business then you might be like, I feel like I need geopolitical. I feel like I need vulnerability. But I think if you have that disconnect from the business, but the business isn't going to be able to tell you, oh, you asked for intelligence requirements. Mm-hmm. Here's my blah, 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 blah. They don't even know what an intelligence requirement is. Right. I wouldn't even phrase a conversation with a business stakeholder that way. When I was in high school, I was reading Tom Clancy books, and I thought Jack Ryan was so cool, and I needed to find a way to pay for college. So I went to recruiters, and I went to the Army and the Navy and the Air Force um, and the Marines. The Army was the only one that would give me the Jack Ryan job as, <laughs> as, as, as I saw it. So I, I joined the Army. I, I was stationed in the UK and Germany and Kuwait. But I, I had a, a four and a half year uh, career in, in the Army. And then I kind of made my way into technology. I think I've still to this day am the only industry analyst between Gartner and Forrester that actually came from the intelligence community. So I started writing about it. So it was very good timing for me. So I did that. And I was at Forrester. I covered a vendor uh, at Forrester Digital Shadows, where I work now. And so when I left Forrester, I came to the dark side. And I ultimately, I run the threat intelligence team that we have at Digital Shadows. So I have about 15, 16 people across the globe a real mix of people from language, traditional backgrounds in Intel to people that have never been in Intel before and as well as people that have a technical background. So, you know, all throughout my career, there's kind of been this, you know, narrative of threat. I know that you talked about doing this kind of stuff at Netflix. You went on a a world tour, right? And, (laughs) And you talked to all the lines of business. What are you concerned about? What do you care about? Then it's our job. Yeah. To, def- to come up with the intelligence requirements, to match it to the assets and to collection capabilities, and then figure out where your gaps are. But it, it all, to me, I like the top-down approach. A lot of people start at just open-source IOCs. And, right. I mean, you can kind of meet yourself in the middle at some point, but that's another kind of the gateway drug to, to, to threat intel. <laughs> yeah, it is. And that's where Easy came from, the Easy framework that I have spoke about ad nauseum uh, all over the place. I've never, I've never heard about this. What oh, yeah, it? yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll explain it to you. I so, never saw uh, that big red button on social <laughs> yeah, media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Easy, easy framework, it, it works because when you realize that threat intelligence or really even cybersecurity across the board is a service-centric function. You're supporting other folks with information and knowledge. So when you look at easy, 
you start with requirements, E, illicit requirements. Because if you're taking the requirements from your old job, like, oh yeah, this worked at such and such company, I'm gonna bring it here. Like, that's probably not the best way to bring on requirements. You gotta talk to the people that Elicit's you're supporting. a great word for it too, right? Because right? you, you are eliciting it from someone else. Exactly. So you're not like, here's blah, blah, blah. That's yeah, great, I love it. It's the base, eliciting requirements. I've only worked for one private sector company where I walked in and the boss in charge knew exactly what the requirements were. And the mm. reason is, he was a retired army colonel from mm. Cyber Command. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so <laughs> kudos to him, <laughs> Jeff Schilling. Um, and then after that, it was a matter of like, I, I think I was spoiled in, my, in that first role. And then, yeah, how yeah. do we talk about this? What are your priorities? What is the most at risk that we need to bump up on this list? But mm -hmm. well, you're right, it's about eliciting it. Yep. Like an interrogation, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just a casual conversation with some drinks. Like, hey, let me invite you out, have a conversation. Uh, so what are you worried about? You know, and then <laughs> yes. just kind of start that. And then you move into how do you get that information, right? That's the A and the, the easy framework is assess your collection plan. Where is this information going to come from? Do you, do you need feeds? Do you need access to dark web information? Like there's so many things that really goes into that. And then when I ended up redoing it for cybersecurity, it was assess resources. But that can apply to intelligence as well because sometimes you need additional analysts. Sometimes you need tools. Language skills. Language yeah. skills. All, all sorts of different things when you get to assess what you need in order to meet those marks. But whenever you see folks that make the requirements registry, they have a laundry list of things that everybody wants everything under the sun, right? Give me everything on XYZ technology. It's not scalable, especially if you have one person that's doing threat intelligence. What would you offer to the folks out there that are doing it by themselves and they're they're trying to meet the demands of all these different things, where do they start first? I would say it depends on your budget. Um, yeah. If you have one person on your CTI team, I hope I hope you have a budget for some tools. Um, but you know, I started in a role where I was the only CTI analyst and I was new at cyber and I had to use free open source tools for OSINT until we could afford to add on, you know, some vendor intel to it and kind of enhance what we had. But we started started at the bottom, you yeah. know, free open source tools. But you add value where you can with what you have and then add on from there. Yeah, you, you kind of take baby, I think baby steps is what I would say. Yeah. You take baby steps and I think the other bit is, you know, start off with the assets that are most important. You can't protect all the things. Mm -hmm. What is the one system that you absolutely must protect what are the threats against it? And then, then three years later, maybe you've got a much more mature program and you know, you've grown the team from one to four people or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And advice for threat intel analysts and managers out there, I would say protect your CTI analyst if you only have one or two. <laughs> the company, the organization is gonna start finding out what you do and how valuable it is and everyone will try to get a piece like, oh, can right. you give me some? Can you give me some intel? Which is great to kind of expand and hopefully get a budget to go with it. But oftentimes, if it doesn't come with the budget for tools and uh, intel, then you're kind of being pulled apart. Yep. So it's important for managers and analysts to kind of protect like, hey, these are my priorities right now. Let's talk about how we can expand uh, to meet the needs of, of other internal customers in the company. Especially with the headlines. It's been, it's been, it seems like it's been yeah. the year of the breach for a decade now. Yeah. But, you know, let's just go solar winds till now. Right. Like, just, you had the summer of ransomware, you had Hafnium just over a year ago and all that. So I think protecting the analysts is really, really key. Uh, one thing that, that we have done is when we start getting a lot of requests in, we're like, okay, we're going to produce a product and then we're going to disseminate it to everybody because you're getting, you know, 15 requests in, 10 requests, it's trending up, let's get it out, and then you stop future questions because you've already done a flash report or whatever your version of a product is to try to head it off. Or when you see something that's coming, you're like, okay, here's this zero-day, wormable, remote code ex exploit, blah, blah, blah. We need to produce something and kind of get ahead of the threat a little bit. Mm -hmm. But you do have to protect the analysts. I mean, we got to protect everybody in the space right now. Like, yep. it's just been brutal. Really, we've had the threat landscape, the pandemic. I mean, everybody's exhausted. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I mean, it's all about the people. Complexity is everywhere. Instead of avoiding challenges or fearing failure, 
I've learned that you have to focus on what you can control. In work and in life, when that noise and chaos try to creep in, I choose to stay true to myself and remember who I love. That's how I control complexity. We're already on the track of easy, so we might as well keep going. Yeah. But I did want to ask, because I'm going to spoil the S. The S is strive for impact. And we were just talking about budget issues, not having enough team resources or enough money to get the threat intelligence. How do you strive for impact with limited resources? It's all about high leverage things that you can do. It's what are your most critical needs for intelligence and what can you do against those? I mean, we were just talking about how you can waste time, like, I used to hate weekly activity reports because you spent a lot of people hours trying to produce this report and you wrap everything up and you're like, oh goodness, we just spent three days, it's Thursday, and now we're gonna send it out to everybody. Crickets. You might get a couple <laughs> thumbs up, like, oh, thanks, this is great. And then everyone else like doesn't read it. So that's like the opposite for striving for impact. You're just delivering something because you're like, this is what we should do. But that's why you have to get super strategic and surgical about what you're giving to people from an intel perspective. One thing that I'm a proponent of, and this goes back to your own data, is the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report just came out. And I've always advocated for doing your own version. It doesn't have to be in their language, Veris. You could do it. Catalog the incidents that you have in your environment. And you could produce your own annual report for the company. Right. Um, and you could have it where it launches perhaps in September. So you get into the planning budget cycle for the next year. You're like, over the past year, we've had these 100 incidents. We've had one breach, and this is how they got in. You could do it to MITRE ATT&CK mm -hmm. and use techniques there. And then it's your own data. Yep. And then you could be like, okay, we are getting a lot of stuff that's coming in, and their initial access vector is credentials. Okay, we need to use this to justify our spend for MFA for a service that's out there. So you could get a college graduate, you could get an intern, that knows data to kind of come in and help you do this and really help your overall team. You could help your CISO direct their investment. Right. And it's what's happening to your actual environment. Then you could layer on, here's what we're seeing in the vertical. Mm -hmm. You could layer on a little bit of, you know, CTI by headlines, like here's the big headlines over the year and this is how it could have impacted us. But you're starting with your data and it's the actual things. And I think you would have a, a an audience that's more interested, a CIO, a CISO and beyond if it's like, Here's what happened to us, but you have the data and then you have the narrative that helps the business people as well. Business email compromise, it's not a bad one to use if you have it because the CFO is involved and you can use a BEC mm -hmm. to kind of raise awareness in, in organizations outside of there. So again, it's your own data sources, put the narrative together with your data and then start layering on things. Yeah, I completely agree. And one of the things I've observed that a lot of threat intel teams I think are struggling with is they reinvent the wheel. They, mm -hmm. They're constantly making new templates for, for reports and they're, they're not sharing out the reports that they've already written. Mm -hmm. So if you establish, like operationally speaking, if you establish kind of a, a watering hole for your organization to go get those threat intel products, they may be able to glean information from a campaign that happened a year ago that maybe is happening again. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important not to reproduce work that you've already done because time and people are a limited resource. So mm -hmm. put it all in one place where it can be found. And then if you see a gap like, hey, we don't have a process for this or we need a better framework for how we're analyzing this type of information, then work on that together. But don't reinvent the wheel. Also, if you think of the longevity of someone, especially in the great resignation, you might not have, your analyst turnover could be quick. So mm -hmm. yeah. you might have an analyst that did something two years ago and it's sitting down in the dungeon and nobody else knows about it. So make it accessible to your own team yeah. to then reuse and build off of and diff off of. Absolutely. And I always say, if you work for a vendor or you have a marketing team or a graphics design team available, reach out to them and say, hey, would you mind putting together a really clean template right. for client reports or for internal reports, whatever you Do an need. infographic for your internal team on yeah. your internal report. I and like that a lot. Same goes for presentation slides, because I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a graphic designer and slides are not my forte. <laughs>
I'm currently a threat intelligence analyst at Recorded Future. I work within the global issues team. So I do geopolitical intelligence and I focus on influence operations. So coordinated state-sponsored propaganda and disinformation. But the way I got into this position in particular is I started out in the U.S. Army doing threat intelligence. Then I made my way into cybersecurity when I moved back home in 2015. And I really feel like I lucked out. I was looking for jobs all over this area. And at that point, it was kind of a job market flooded with veterans. And so I'm putting myself out there and I'm a Chinese linguist with a top secret security clearance. And people are like, no, you're overqualified for this office job or whatever. I was just looking for something to be able to provide for my kids. You know, there's no government agencies here that really need Chinese linguists. So I found a job posting for intelligence analyst at a company called Armor Defense in Richardson. And they it was a cybersecurity company. And I thought to myself, there is no way I'm qualified for this job, but I'm just going to try. I'm just going to put myself out there because I don't, I don't know where else to look. Um, and I applied and I found somebody that works in that company in the Intel analyst role. And he was also an Army veteran. Mm-hmm. And so I connected with him on LinkedIn managed to get an interview. The interview was horrible. I don't know. I don't know how to do that. No, I don't know how to do that either. But I laid it out. I said, look, I've got the threat intel experience from the NSA and from the Army, and this is what I can bring to your team. Now, here's my cyber gaps, but I have a plan to fill those gaps. I want to do Security Plus. I want to do this class. Mm -hmm. Um, And luckily, I was sitting across the table from a lot of military veterans, and they saw my potential. And they said, Charity, if you can learn Chinese, you can learn cyber. And that's basically how I got my first cyber job. And I was just in tears when I got that job. I was so happy. And I just kind of committed. And I I jumped in head first, did 110% in learning everything I could about cyber threats and what hackers do, kind of honed my skills in different areas, malware analysis, vulnerability analysis, and just kind of growing as I go. And then when I found this position at Recorded Future, I felt like this is what I really want to do. I get to use my college degree in international relations and integrate it with cyber threat and do geopole analysis. So that's how I ended up here. What is the impact that you've seen that you could say this is how threat intelligence became valuable? This is something that it helped an organization with or prevented a breach? What, what stories y'all got? Actually, I want to flip that on you because yeah. the Ron and Chris story really began when you have a threat hunter and you have the intel analysts finally coming together, working together, trying to figure things out. What was your your initial response to like how threat intelligence done or even just how I did threat intelligence? Yeah, the initial response for me was hectic. Just because at that, at that time when we worked together, it was around 2015. And there was a lot of buzz going around in threat intelligence from having strategic reports. Chris was a masterful at that, but also indicators of compromise through feeds and just gathering data from multiple data sources. So trying to use a report, also to use a feed, and then to speak that in machine language to solutions was difficult for me. Mm -hmm. I felt like as a threat hunter, I was constantly on a wild goose chase, trying to find needles in a haystack, especially at that time because there wasn't as many structures and procedures and processes for threat intelligence and how to do it well. I feel like now there's a lot more, but teams still find themselves not knowing if they're doing it well, especially when you're looking at trends because you might not have data from two years ago to show like, this is how much new information we've gotten and how, how, how it impacted things positively. Many organizations that I've worked at, honestly, threat intelligence has negatively impacted operations. Not from like it caused us to be breached, but from the aspect of time, time and human resources. If the humans can't figure out how to use this data, then it was ultimately not the best investment for the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think if you break it down by use cases, credentials could be one. You know, get out of IOC land. Yeah. yeah. Like, I call them indicators of exhaustion. Yeah. Uh, and I think that summarizes, yeah. you know, the That's defender. My yeah, yeah, you're exhausted by them. But I think if you look at credentials as a good example, you've got integrations now where you can, you can find a credential out on the open web, the derp web, 
wherever you can validate it against Azure. You can mm-hmm. you can disable an account and you can you can get playbooks. I think the rise of SOAR or just orchestration in general, but that's a newer phenomenon. In the if you think back, our sectors maybe twelve ish year. I mean, it's a little bit longer, but really 10, 12 years. Commercial CTI, private sector CTI has been growing. So I think credentials is one that we've got a much better story on. I think vulnerability intelligence would be another one now where you can go out and you know get past the CVSS scoring. But you know a good example, MITRE, I'm sorry, uh, CISA puts out their known vulnerabilities. I mean, I think they did three of them this week, at least three this week, and they've had over 100 vulnerabilities. But you could quickly, I mean, they've got that stuff in JSON. You could take that, you could map it against, go back to assets. Yep. Is this relevant? Cut off, hopefully, like 95% of it. Probably not. You probably have a lot more vulnerable stuff. And then you could use that to prioritize your remediation efforts or countermeasures that you need to put in place. So I think getting beyond the IOCs is a place where you can get some wins in CTI, uh, for sure. But I think use case, you know, we're going to work on this use case. We're going to work with the team to implement whatever the remediation is. But you can't do all the things. You got to baby step it. Imagine, you know, finding all these vulnerabilities three in one week and then going to another team and saying, hey, guess what? Your production boxes you got to go upgrade them and they IT is going to love you. They're generating thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars for the organization. And then you're asking them to perform an act on a box that has a very specific service. Maybe it has to go down, maybe they don't have this dynamic infrastructure. I think sometimes with the introduction of threat intelligence, it's almost like you start to ask the team and the organization for a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I run IT so I appreciate the challenges uh, of that, but I also don't think as a CTI person you should expect you got to patch all these things right now. Like, yeah. here's the ones that we assess, you know, beyond what we get from external providers, CISA, whatever. Yep. And these are ones that we think, okay, it's a- uh, active exploits. We need to pop this up. But you also should hopefully know more about your assets and know, okay, we're a retail. We can't do changes from October until mm-hmm. January. I mean, there's the business nuance. That's why I think if you, this is our most important system that we have to keep up to date. Yep. Hey, guys, this is out there. I'm not telling you need to hit the switch right now, but I could. And you're, you're raising that because you're right, Ron. You're, gonna, you're not going to make friends in <laughs> IT if you just give them 1,000 CVEs that they have to patch in the environment. You know, it, it's not going to be a, a good relationship. Some of the use cases right now that I see are making the biggest impact or that we hear from clients that are making a big impact are third-party risk intelligence. Yep. Mm. So people want to know, okay, we feel like we've got a good idea of how we're securing our organization, but what about these vendors? What about these third parties that we work with? How are they making us more vulnerable? Mm. And then the other side is geopolitical intelligence. I have to mm-hmm. drop that because that's yeah. what I do now. And it's it's what really is that? yeah it's you know anything from military intelligence wartime intel to diplomatic changes influence operations like disinformation coordinated disinformation campaigns you know clients will reach out to us specifically for you know ad hoc research on hey how is this change or this battle in Ukraine going to affect our supply chain. Uh, in our employees in that area? Or, you know, how is China trying to influence Latin American countries away from the U.S.? And how is that going to impact our organization? Um, And it's really incredible when we get feedback on how much of an impact our intel makes in the world. And you're just like, oh my gosh, we're we're doing really big things here. Mm -hmm. Strategic level intelligence. It also will resonate with the decision makers because they're reading the headlines. I mean, this actually, if you ask a, a leader, especially you know six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, like what are the implications of Russia Ukraine going to be for my business? Um, I provide satellite services. You know, what is the Russian attack on Viasat going to mean for me? It gets beyond techie land. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I'm kind of immersed in my research right now. I'm about to write a report on the decoupling from Chinese technology that's been happening around the world. And um, more specifically, how is that impacting risk and threat in the enterprise? You know, we've seen in the past few months how a lot of organizations have been forced to decouple from Russian technology and Russian companies as a result of sanctions. And people are asking, what will happen 
in a couple of years or three years or five years down the road, if China invades Taiwan, how will that impact our business and what will we be required to do? And so this research is really in-depth on on that stuff. And that's geopolitical intelligence. It's like the Chinese Communist Party is far away, but what are they doing that's eventually going to impact us someday? In my eyes, where we're at today with threat intelligence is it's a luxury. You know, you spoke Mm. a bit about taking vulnerabilities, known vulnerabilities that are already out there and applying them towards your security stack. And it's, it's very difficult for organizations to do that, let alone to use the threat information from a database or an analyst and then apply that towards their solutions or technology solutions. I think right now is a luxury until we can do this concept of shifting left and really getting closer to finding the root cause. Why was it an attacker able to infiltrate our, our environment? Was it due to credentials? Was it due to a vulnerability? When you can answer those questions, then I think threat intelligence becomes even more valuable. That information is already threat intelligence, looking at credentials and vulnerabilities, but being able to take a report and hear about a trend and then to do something with it, I think is where we want to go. But many teams and organizations aren't there unless they have a big budget. And that's why I call it a luxury. I think we need to get to the point where Threat intelligence is really the basis for how we do cybersecurity because people are going to fight me on this, but when you're just installing solutions because you you think it's just best practice, I think you might miss the mark. But if you can really look at the threat environment, what's really going on out there, what are the attacks that are happening, and you can use that context to help point you in the right direction for how you build your your infrastructure with how you bring on certain investments. I honestly think it's essential. It sounds like in some ways, like we're talking about the future, you know, like using this information, especially the geopolitical information and really using vulnerabilities, making an impact. It sounds like this is almost like a future state. Mm -hmm. I've seen some organizations very successful using threat intelligence, but what kind of things do we need for more organizations to be successful when using and looking at threat intelligence or even security intelligence? Was this a setup for the why for the easy button? It sounds like it was. <laughs> but yeah, the why, yield the feedback. Feedback is a gift. And if you aren't taking feedback from your stakeholders as, was this valuable? Did this provide an impact? Did this enable you to make a decision or take an action in our environment to improve the security posture of our organization? If you're not getting this information from other people and saying, okay, we need to change this, we need to adjust that, oh, this requirement's off, we need to tweak it, tune it. We don't have the collection for this particular thing. I think that's where a lot of folks miss the mark is really being open to feedback because we get really, really wrapped up in our baby, like this is what we made. And we don't like to be told that sometimes our baby is ugly. So <laughs> when you open that conversation, you're like, is my baby ugly? <laughs> then, then, then you open that dialogue for improvement. Yep. I do think it's kind of hard to think about the future state. I, I do agree with the, the principle that most companies, from a maturity perspective, struggle in the threat intelligence uh, side. And also, I think there's problems just finding enough people. Like we need to talk about training people and, and, and a wide variety of people, people from technical backgrounds. Like you wouldn't want to have a threat intel team that is all military intelligence people, right? right? That would not be a good thing either. So I think for the future, we need to have a pipeline of people that are coming up, be receptive to feedback um, and have good stories that align to the business mm-hmm. and what they care about. Where does diversity really come in from your perspective? Variety of... Uh, mindsets, thought patterns, um, bias. Um, Honestly, the team I currently work on is the most diverse team that I've worked on. Uh, We have people from think tanks, academics, military. We have minorities and we have um, LGBTQ. It's just very diverse, so many different types of mindsets. And when we write analyst notes or reports for our clients, we always have a double review process, a peer review and a senior. And we we try to pick people that think different than us, or at least I, I like to do that. And it really does require us to kind of take our you know self out of the picture and understand that we all have some unconscious bias and we have to check that. For example, I wrote a report last year 
on China. And um, one of my peer reviewers, he's um, a different mindset. Like to me, they're adversary, and to him, they're competitor. Mm. And and so he he tries to like. Uh, maybe we don't need the word authoritarian 32 times in this paper. You know, like yeah. like the facts speak for themselves. The intelligence speaks for itself. So it's often this balance of are we helping the situation by providing this information or are we inflaming geopolitical tensions um, as a result of this report? And we try to just let the intel speak for itself. But the diversity of the team is really what makes our products pop and that we can offer the majority view and the minority view within our own team. And we can have disagreements and that's totally okay. So that's what I think is ideal and we're still growing and learning about how we can get better. Um, But compared to some of the teams I've worked with before that were maybe all military or um, all male, um, it, it really is interesting to see what happens when you get a diverse set of minds together. I just, I really geek out on cognitive biases and things like that. And when you look at our, in life, we need, we we want diversity in general, but I think in intelligence, it's so much more important. And you just can't have groupthink, the single hive mind that is making this assessment. You need people from other geographies, religions, sexes, whatever the case may be, because you come up with, to your point, better intelligence products. And to me, I think the, the, the threat intelligence space should be the most diverse space if you want to have really quality products that think about all the scope and all the implications of what you're saying and take different backgrounds in, we should be there. And I, I, I think there's still a lot of opportunity for us to be more diverse in this space, but I do think we probably lead the way in general in cybersecurity, but there's so much more room to go. And you know, there's a really good, you know, Dick Hewers, very famous uh, person that's done research and he's got the psychology of intelligence analysis, which is a really big one. And he talks about all the biases that are out there. And then you use, I'm sure y'all do it, use structured analytic techniques to kind of dissect a problem and brainstorm it and externalize your thought. And and I think that's really key is like, what are your key assumptions? Other people hear these key assumptions. They may check your assumptions. You're wrong. You're missing that. And you kind of continue down the the line. So these these tools, even if you don't have the most diverse team, you can use some of these structured analytic techniques to try to eliminate the bias that you have. Um, and, and we have unconscious bias, as you mentioned, but many people also have conscious bias as well. Mm-hmm. So I think you can use tools to minimize the bias that you might have. Absolutely. I think threat intelligence definitely leads the way in diversity. When you look at cybersecurity as a whole, I've never seen so many teams be so proud of their team members coming from different industries, librarians, bankers, marketing mm-hmm. team members, <laughs> lawyers, <laughs> lawyers, you know, military service people. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when you look at threat intelligence, you got to be proud of the diversity that you all have brought to cybersecurity as a whole. I think when you get into the technical weeds, you see security engineers, security analysts, those teams seem to be less diverse than threat intelligence analysts. And I think that's something that you should definitely be proud of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like in our company, even though I'm a Chinese linguist, I'm not a native Chinese speaker and I'm not mm-hmm. a native to that culture. And you can glean a lot from the language itself, but I know better than to assume I know what the enemy or the adversary is thinking about or maybe what the cultural backdrop is for, for some campaign. So it's so important to have those people that you can reach out and go, hey, can you add your cultural expertise to this? Yes. Or what do you think the mindset of the adversary is? It's really good for, there's a bias called mirror imaging, where you take your view and worldview and you apply it to a problem. So if you have someone that's you know in the region, came from China, immigrant, Russia, whatever, you know they can maybe eliminate this American view that we have, and it's just one angle. So yeah, it's, a, it's definitely something you want to avoid. Mm-hmm. I always say that threat intelligence is probably one of the easiest within cybersecurity, things to get into, one of the hardest things to master. I've taken people that were English majors in college and say, hey, if I teach you the terminology, teach you how to think critically, teach you a little bit about cybersecurity, they could be a decent threat intelligence analyst. If we, you put them really specific, like, hey, I want you to report on X, Y, and Z. If they know how to research, they can think critically, they can do a little bit of threat intel. And I love that we're talking about bias. And I'm going to ask a question. And the main question, is threat intelligence valuable? Some people say it isn't. 
Snake oil? I know where Ron sits. Right. <laughs> some, some people think it, it helps lead our organizations to be more secure. So in your unbiased opinion, <laughs> is it valuable? As a former client absorbing and using threat intelligence, I think it's extremely valuable. But if you know how and where to apply it, if you know exactly what you need, you know what your intel requirements are, and you've got the processes and the tools you need to apply it, absolutely. But like I mentioned before, it's it's not a, a, like a cure-all. You know, there's not a magic potion. Threat intel will solve all your problems. But it's definitely not snake oil. Wendy Nather, many years ago at RSA conference, talked about the security poverty line. And many organizations are below that poverty line. And I think, to your point, I don't know that I would call threat intelligence a luxury, but you definitely have to have some fundamental things in place before you can do all the things in threat intel. But I think even if you're below the security poverty line, you could take intel alerts from CISA and you could action them and improve your posture, right? And that may be the most that you could do in your program. And that is a chunk of threat intelligence that can be successful for you. Mm -hmm. And then as you mature over time, maybe never any higher. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you're, you're, you're moving into full automation. You've got strategic yeah. and things along those lines. So I think, I mean, here's a typical, uh, uh, answer, it depends, right? <laughs> it depends on your organization, your maturity, your resources, and your capability. But if, if people are listening to this and think, I can't do threat intel, CISA is a really good example of taking the stuff that they have. They do a report on Black Matter ransomware group last year. You can action that. So don't be intimidated by threat intel. There's things that you can do, but don't try to bite off more that you can chew. And over time, you will mature. You may hit the ceiling, but there is a path forward. Well Love said. it. I think it's valuable. I think it's one of the most valuable things that you can have. And one of the things that everyone said at the very beginning of all this was doing an assessment, doing an audit to really see where you can apply this information. If you are just trying to consume it all, whether it's in the form of reports or feeds, indicators of exhaustion, I love that, then you're gonna ultimately go nowhere. But if you know exactly how you should be using a tool, then it's gonna be highly effective. I've seen this with security logging, like looking at SIM and data warehouse, data lakes, and people just attempting to store it all, saying, give me all the information because I'm trying to do big data, machine learning, but that really just slows you down. If you know how to use it though, it could be sharp as a knife and it could really lead the team to success. Absolutely. As long as you use the easy framework. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I try to keep my, my bias at bay, but I really do feel like that context is everything. It's everything in yes. anything that we do is understanding what is going on out there in the world and, and how do we orient ourselves to that. So when you're thinking about threats, what's going on? Why does it matter to us? That bottom line up front, why does it matter? Something that sometimes we miss, but I think it's one of the most important questions that you need to ask in cybersecurity because if you're trying to protect your customers, you're trying to protect your mission, your people, you have to figure out what's going on out there in the world. So we've come a long way. You know, I've, I feel like I've been in the middle of this whole conversation. It's snake oil, it's valuable, but I think it's something for organizations, security programs. It's something that we should all at least take a look at. Whether your team can use it today or use it tomorrow, we have to at least be open and understanding. We can't tilt one way or the other too hard. We have to invest in our minds, our programs, and also our teams. So, you know, with that, let's toast it up and invest where we can. Good.